Hi, this is John Burlingame, host of Disney's Four Scores podcast. In this podcast series, we bring together the most accomplished film and television composers working today and reveal the emotional journeys, inspirations, and unique challenges of their work. Our guest today is a five-time Emmy winner whose music has been heard in feature films, television, and video games. Everything from The Living Edens on PBS to Steven Spielberg's miniseries Taken, HBO's Lovecraft Country, the EverQuest series of games, and in the concert world, the musical setting of Langston Hughes' epic poem, Ask Your Mama. It's a pleasure to welcome and to be in the studio of Laura Cartman. Thanks, John. I, I wanted to um, draw your attention to the Emmys, which are dressed in Barbie doll clothes. <laughs> I had not noticed that. Yes, And yes. I think it's the most... Uh, unique presentation of Emmys I've ever seen. Well, they just seem kind of naked, frankly, without the uh, without the clothes on. So we thought that we should just, uh, you know. Everyone should do that. Yeah. No, I think so. I think so. What was your first musical experience working for Disney? I had this great job. And it was like the 90s, maybe into 2000, but it was really at the beginning of my career. I took it over from John Debney after he sort of broke out. And I did all the introduction for Michael Eisner on the Disney movie night, the Sunday night Disney thing. I probably have done, oh, I don't know, 200 versions of When You Wish Upon a Star. (laughs) And then I also did this like crazy video game called Connect Disneyland Adventures. And this was for the Connect, you know, the video game thing where you actually move your body. And that was a crazy situation because there were six of us on it and we had to write 300 minutes of music in three weeks. So it was a video game, but they used some of the Disney music and then some of it I had to compose. So at that point, my son was a year old. And so I set to orchestra all of the little tunes that we had made up for him. So, you know, they're, they're little tunes like da, 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 you know, that kind of thing. So I, I just took all of his tunes because I had to come up with like such fast sort of composition. And so it became all like a, like the roaming around the park music for the, for the video game. It was a really fun gig. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And I did It's a Small World and I did, you know, musicologically correct versions of It's a Small World. So it's not like the English horn playing, you know, the the, the Arabic music I actually had. You know, Arabs playing Arabic music for It's a Small World. So it was a really fun little gig, or big gig, really. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So, Laura, how did this whole Marvel experience begin for you? Obviously, you're no stranger to scoring fantasy projects, mm-hmm. but I wondered if you'd ever done a comic book adaptation prior to these Marvel shows. You know, I had been circling around Marvel for a while. It was someplace that I really wanted to work. And I'd made some inroads there and gotten close on a couple of projects, but hadn't quite made it. And um, frankly, it, I, I, don't, I don't know why, why what if kind of blossomed, but I will say this. I was at an Academy's nominees lunch because at that point I was governor of the um, 
of the music branch and Kevin Feige was sitting next to me. And so we started chatting and he started saying, listen, I'm about to get into TV. And they, they hadn't done, you know, any TV at that point. It wasn't that long ago, maybe two, two or three years ago. And a couple of days later, I got a call. So (laughs) I don't know if that did it, but he was certainly familiar with me because, like I said, I'd gotten close on a couple of the movies. But I did What If, and and through What If, I met uh, Brad Winterbaum and also Brian Andrews, who were the showrunners. And Brad has now gotten promoted to be the head of all the Disney Plus series. So he's running all the shows, and he's kind of the the go-to person. And so... I, I got in there with them on that, and I, I I think they were very pleased with my work on that. And then I got hired for the Marvels, and then I got hired for Ms. Marvel, kind of in the middle of all of it. Sure. Yeah. Did you know much about Marvel Comics? I mean, were you familiar with these heroes and villains? Somewhat. And I studied very hard. I had, well, the thing is about what if, as you know, is that you got to really know the MCU to score what if because it plays off everything. So if you don't know what the thing is that it's playing off, then you're completely lost. So I had seen all the movies, but I didn't know like every little detail. So I had a... um, Probably a five-day, you know, not a jam session, but, but a, a deep cram immersion. session. Yeah, <laughs> a deep immersion with my then assistant, Kyle Laporte, who is a Marvel fanatic. Ooh, you remember Kyle? Yeah. And so Kyle and I just sat here and just like, okay, what's, oh, yeah, that's his daughter. Oh, no, but wait a minute. Wait, is she good? And it's like, no, she's bad. Oh, Loki is, okay. You know, so so we went through all of that so that I really, like, became familiar with uh, with the with the details of it. And here's a funny story. I don't know why I'm, I mean, I'm, I, yeah, we were on vacation last week, so maybe I'm more loose-lipped than I would normally be. <laughs> um, for years, I secretly watched a soap opera. All my children. I watched it from the time I was like 17 till it was off the air. I loved this. It was like my lunch. I would go up and watch all my children. And it's actually not unlike that. You know, it's a generational saga, right? And and once you kind of figure out who's where and what they're doing and what kind of world and place they're from and then where things intersect and where they don't. So once you learn the kind of the basic rules, then it's it's just it's really a lot of fun. And it's storytelling that I've always enjoyed. Also, the thing about What If is it's animated. And I was trying to remember, had you done animation before or doesn't it need a different approach than live action? I had done animation, not a lot of it, but actually I got an Annie nomination for a short film that I did. Before Ms. Marvel, I had done some other South Asian projects, most notably a little beautiful animated film called Sitara that played on Netflix. And in many ways, even though it was a piece of animation for children, it was kind of a test run for Ms. Marvel. What if doesn't really function in the same way as the way that I have worked with animation. I think that it functions more like the movies. And so really there's in many ways kind of spin-offs and and recontextualizing of the movies. So it's not like in a lot of animated films there's a, you know you have to react to what's going on 
from the animation standpoint. And and here you react, but more from an action sort of philosophy. Like, where do people want the action to change? Where do you get a hero theme? Where are you in motion? Where are you in stasis? Where are you in a dramatic moment? So really, it's it's more like scoring live action action. And it was also an anthology. Yeah. So it's a different story, different characters, yes. different mood every single week. I, I different thinking, music. Yeah, and it's it, it's to me, that seems almost you know, nine times more complicated than doing a single series. Did every episode need a different approach? Yeah, every episode does because every episode is based on something different. So in episode 10 or episode nine, I guess, it's it's uh, Guardians of the Multiverse. So this kind of, you know, mixing of Avengers and Guardians of the Galaxy. And so they're, every single one is different. And so the approach is, look, what are we going to draw from the films? Are we using themes? Are we not using themes? Are we creating new themes? And so that is the that's what the spotting sessions basically are going over each episode, figuring out what genre it is. We had a zombie episode. So on that one, it was like, you know, I, I actually took an Avengers theme that I recorded in a previous episode and put it all backwards and messed with it electronically. So it's like, you know, how are you going to take the Avengers and make them into zombies, you know? And so you want to use the horror trope, but you also want to touch on the Avengers stuff. So our philosophy has been celebrate the music of the MCU celebrate the wonderful work that other composers have done. And then I go off and do my own thing as well. So your narrator here is the Watcher. Yes. Who, as an old, and I mean old, Marvel Comics reader from the 60s, I always loved that character. Did he have a theme since he was your primary sort of, uh, the guy who, who would actually be the one thread throughout? He's the one thread throughout, as, as you as you got. And he does have a theme, and it's the main title theme. It's the da-da-dee-da-da-da-da. And so that is that is sort of the consistent thing. And, and when he appears, you'll hear that theme. And then it's also, it is the, the kind of the main theme of the series and the thing that knits all the episodes together is the Watcher and his music. One of the things that, that I, again, I kept thinking, this is a lot of work, was there are orchestral elements, there are choral elements, mm -hmm. at least in some of the episodes. Yeah. And there are also, I think, electronic, perhaps studio-manipulated kind yeah. of elements. Can yeah. you talk about why that was the right approach and how complicated it was? Because every genre of the movies has a different approach. I mean, there are multiple genres. There are zombie films. There's, you know, there's a Doctor Strange, which has got his own sound, but that's a love story. So that it, it, you have to have the, the flexibility to be able to really accomplish all of those genres. So let's talk about Ms. Marvel, which just recently concluded its run on Disney+. Plus. There's so much to like about this show, you know, which has a Pakistani-American teenager in Jersey City mm -hmm. named Kamal Khan who inherits a magical bangle that gives her cosmic energy powers. Mm -hmm. God, I can't even begin to ask, what was the challenge here? Well, the bangle didn't really give her powers. <laughs> See, I've, the, al I've already bangle, messed it up. <laughs> the bangle brought out her powers because I've had this conversation. <laughs> I I've had that exact conversation for about 25 hours. The bangle, <laughs> this is the bangle. 
Uh, oh my God, that's a great project. I mean, first of all, the representation, what it means to people, the letters I've gotten, the people who've reached out on, you know, on social media, the uh, the cast members who've reached out to me. It all means so much to so many people. And there was a moment, I think, when the Twitter the Twitter embargo was lifted, and it was just crazy. I called Sana, the showrunner, and I said, Sana, have you been to the internet? Have you seen what this is doing for people? Like, you're literally changing people's lives. And she, she w- was spectacular to work with. So talk a little bit about her. Sana, what's her last Amina. name? Amina. Amina. Sana is Ms. Marvel. She is Ms. Marvel. I think she's Ms. Marvel. <laughs> um, she's very involved with the comic and helped develop the character. So she worked at Marvel Comics, and she made this comic book. And um, and then they brought her over to this side when uh, when they decided to um, to bust her out into TV and movies. And, of course, um, Iman is just pitch perfect for this uh, for this role but but it is about sauna and her life i think very 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 much so at least what she's told me i mean the father is just like her dad and i mean these are f- familiar i think the from the parents are familiar to a lot of people you know there's no surprise and and they're just delightful but it's about her and her experiences and i think um musically of course it was important to share that representation and to collaborate with like amazing amazing south asian musicians but also to bring kamala into the marvel universe and give her the dignity of a big hero theme and give her all the bells and whistles that all the heroes get in in mcu so that that was really important to me as well it's interesting because in in a lot of shows you will have a traditional orchestral foundation and maybe add some instruments to sort of spice it up or give it that sort of slightly exotic quality. But that's not the case really here. It seems like everything was thought out from the very beginning of how to integrate all of this. Yeah, I mean, basically the theme is based on on Pakistani music, traditional music. I listened to a lot of it. I have a longtime collaborator who was a former student of mine, Aganavi Swami, who I flew in as soon as I got the job and I said, let's sit together. Um, we'd done a num- number of projects together and some other um, uh, Indian projects. And so we talked and I was I was aware, uh, you know, as a, a working knowledge of, of how this music is, is constructed. So I think that I wanted to build the orchestral music out of the fundamentals of of the kind of music that um, that was natural and felt good for that region, but of course Kamala is an American girl, you know uh, she's a first generation, yes, and the bangle, as you mentioned, and her heritage play a huge part in how she finds her heroness. Is that a word? Her mm. heroicness? I don't know, uh, but. Um, um, who she is. Who she is, yeah. And I, I think that, that that's a struggle that we all go through to a certain extent. How do you find out who you are? And it's really a lifelong process, I think, of discovery. So that was something that I related to, too. And so it was this real combination of, of starting with Ground Zero, with creating Western-style superhero melodies that come out of a South Asian tradition, so that when 
the instruments became a part of the orchestral score, they didn't feel added on, but mm. they felt organic to the to the essence of what the music was. But she's also a teenager. She's a teenager. So, so there's is, that too. So, are there beats or contemporary sounds there involved? There are beats and contemporary sounds. I worked with a, a couple of people, a great DJ who helped me with some of the beats. And then we had, you know, we created a lot of tabla loops and dole loops and different different kinds of things. But yeah, there's all of that. And there's also just kind of cutesy electronic music that's teenager. And you find that more in episodes one and two, a little bit in three. And then it, of course, begins to move into a different place when they go to Karachi and then even after they return. So those sort of electronic elements stay in the in the whole score and certainly inform some of the action. But I would say then it starts to move deeper into the orchestral world and deeper into the world of some of my collaborators, um, like the fabulous violinist Reginder, who, who was such an important voice in the score, as we get into the episodes four, five, and six. And I remember you telling me that Reginder was a specialist in Indian classical music, right? Well, he plays a Western violin, but he plays it in a way that absolutely nobody has heard. It's so unusual. And Sana, in one of our first meetings, she said, just listen to this guy play. And I listened to him and I said, let's hire him for the score. Let's just get him. And she said, well, should we? I mean, I said, yeah, let's just get his email address and reach out to him and hire him, you know? And and so we did. And he was was great, a great collaborator and, and and a huge part of the score. Disney's Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including Laura Karpman's scores for Marvel Studios' Ms. Marvel and What If. The Four Scores playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the music you love whenever you like. We had a choir of eight South Asian soloists that we recorded at Henson here in L.A. And your student, who you just mentioned... Uh, Ganavia, yeah. ...is the vocalist, right? Yeah, she's one of the major vocalists. Tell me about that. Did you oh. write material for them? Were you able to improvise? How did you use that sound? That was one of the most exciting scoring sessions of my life. It was so, so cool. We had recorded some choir in Vienna, and it was great. But I said to the Marvel team, listen, I think for episodes four and five, I need a South Asian choir. And choir is not really a part of that tradition. So in the first place, it's sort of a leap because, you know, it's not like, oh, you go to England and you have this deep kind of, you know, choral tradition. So I asked Jasper Randall to to assemble four men and four women. And we went in there and I had music written out, but they have a completely different notation system and it has nothing to do with, uh, you know, with Western notation. So certain things like, you know, her theme, there was one moment where I had them just sing all out of time. Da-da-da, 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 takadir, 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 which means destiny in Urdu. 
And so it was this like beautiful, like undulating, almost minimalist texture against, you know, an orchestral background. And, and at the end of episode five, it was just, I just loved it. But other times we would come up with stuff together and I'd say, okay, I want to do something like this. And then I would sing something and sit at the piano and somebody would say, oh, I've got something. And, and it was like that. And then they said, okay, let's try that. But then we can only do that for four bars because then the harmony changes. So it was this live composition recording. And I've worked with a lot of people like this, but not with eight people in a room with five hours, <laughs> you know? So it's like, it's like rock and roll. And I, I really had my best brain on that day. So that was good. And it was, it's just, it was so exciting. So after that, were you able to then utilize some or all of that in the scores to come? That became like go-to. So we, you know, we went in there with certain spaces to use it, right? So that I knew, I think at that point we were recording it for some of 103, for the opening of 103, when they're the first time that you see the partition and uh, it was pre-partition and they were digging. But then we used it in episode five and then we wound up using it in all kinds of other places too. Talk about some of the other instruments that you used that, uh, that lent such an interesting sound to the score. Well, one of my real movie stars in this, or, you know, musical stars, was Rasika Shakar, who played Bansuri flute. And there's a beautiful moment in the suite, which is kind of the B theme, which really you only hear at the very end of the whole show. And And she plays that along with the violins, and it's just this incredible sound that sounds almost like a human voice, but it isn't. So she was one person that I really, really loved. Rajna, who played Mur uh, Murgundam, um, Bunti Singh, who played Sarangi, MS, uh, MS Krishna, who played Harmonium, and these eight these eight soloists who were unbelievable, these four women, four men who were, you know, a huge part of the, a huge part of the sound of the show, as it turns out. What was the reaction to you for your music by the people who would watch and listen to this. Did you get a lot of reaction? I did. I mean, people loved it. I did an interview recently with an Indian newspaper and she she was like, oh my God, she was so sweet. She said, do you know what you've done for us? It's like, oh my God. <laughs> um, people loved it. But you know, a lot of really, really positive reactions. People being very supportive, feeling like I captured the essence of what this experience was for them. And, and I think, look, there are a lot of conversations that we have and that we need to have about representation, about who does what. I think that what is really essential in film music is that you have empathy, you have experienced things in your own life that can bring that empathy in the deepest, most heartfelt way to the screen, and then you have an open heart, an open mind, and open ears. You need all of those things, especially when you're working with music from a culture that's different from your own. You know, what's interesting to me about the Marvel experience of the last few years is that we've actually learned quite a lot, unexpectedly, about world history. 
and we've been exposed to fresh and un, perhaps to, to our Western ears, unusual sounds, like in Moon Knight mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. as Ms. Marvel. Mm -hmm. And it's actually kind of done us a big sort of cultural favor. Well, you have people there, you know, in particular Victoria Alonso, I think, who is adamant. She's one of the executive producers? Yeah, she's one of the trio. Kevin Lou and Victoria. Okay. And they're the real, you know, the... The honchos. The head honchos, and they listen to everything, every cue. Kevin loves music, <laughs> wants to hear everything that's going on. It's great. But they all are absolutely hell-bent on telling significant stories. And the thing about Ms. Marvel is it's actually real history. So it's 1947 partition. And about it, which many of us knew very little. Yeah, I mean, it is the diaspora that happened around the world, you know, as a result of World War II and the British withdrawing from colonial places. So um, there is this, I think what is familiar to us, especially Jewish people, is to see those trains moving around in Europe, moving people from place to place, displaced people, people who are in great danger. And so that kind of vision is something we've seen, but now seeing where it happened in other places of the world is new and, and hugely significant because for all South Asians, this uh, partition is a wound. Yeah, yeah. It's a massive wound. Before I get into anything else, I want to ask you how you've worked. This is a lot of music. Oh, I know. Of course, over the last, really just the last year or so. I mean, we just started Miss Marvel in February. I mean, that was really, that was a lot. And it was really every week a recording session. I mean, it was a, because basically they, I think they advanced when they were going to air it. So we just had to like kick kick it in. Which reminds me, we didn't talk about how you handled the different elements of recording because you had South Asian soloists. Right. And perhaps they were in South Asia. The, the choir was here, but everybody was in either India or Pakistan. Yeah. And so, I mean, look, it's... A, and, the, it, or, and the orchestra? The orchestra was in Vienna. So, I mean, it's amazing to me how you put all this together. Brad Hanel is, the, is a genius engineer. Um, and he, it's like, we did Lovecraft Country together. And as you well know, with that, everybody recorded individually in their own room because we were at the height of the pandemic and everyone was afraid to leave their house. So I think that people are used to this now at this point. Uh, we're used to doing recording sessions on Zoom and using audio movers, which is a fantastic program where you can really hear what's going on someplace else while you sit in your own studio and listen. And it, yes, it was a, it, it's a combination of recording stuff, creating a library out of the stuff you record, using it in various places, but recording new stuff when you need it, then recording with the orchestra in the old-fashioned way, 1M1, 1M2, and doing that, and then layering on top of that. So it's really, um, it's, it's juggling a lot of balls in the air in terms of like just knowing what's going on at any time and running the studio efficiently, that's a big challenge as well. But, uh, you know, we have done it for a bit, so I think we're pretty good at it. I'd like to step back for a minute and look at the big picture of movie scoring. You've taken a leading role in recent years, co-founding the Alliance for Women Film Composers, becoming the first female music governor in the Motion Picture Academy, and pushing for diversity in all aspects of music for media. Can you talk about where we are now in terms of women getting more opportunities, maybe better working conditions, mm -hmm. in general, more respect, I think? See, what's happening now is that women are getting the opportunity and other underrepresented groups as well to show that something I've known for 
30 years that we're actually really good at this. But when you get the high visibility opportunities, like a Ms. Marvel, like a Loki, like a Moon Knight, now you're seeing what we can do and what we bring to the table. All of us were working, you know, but we were working on smaller projects that didn't have the same visibility. Independent films, documentary, you know, Sundance Film if you got lucky, PBS if you got lucky. So they were great projects, but people didn't have eyes on them. We're getting the gigs now, the kind of opportunities that we've been craving, you know, orchestras, um, budgets. I mean, I'm so used to doing things on a dime that the that one of the really great things about about working for Marvel is that I say I want eight South Asian soloists. I say I need it for the score. I have the support of the of filmmakers, and it's like, yeah. They they put money in the music, they love it, they're happy to do it. And now you're seeing the results. You're seeing diverse voices having multiple opportunities, the kinds of things that we wanted. We still have a ways to go. I think I think we're doing well in TV. We're building A-list TV careers. I think we've got a ways to go in features. Um, it has to be more than one or two or three people. So that's the next horizon or getting those big budget features. I mean, I'm really happy to be doing the Marvels. I know that Hilder's got a, a Todd Field movie coming out. I'm really looking forward to that, uh, which is going to premiere at Venice. You know, Pinar is doing NFL music, which I thought was really cool. <laughs> you know, that was like, that's really uh, breaking some uh, some gender stuff. You we know? should probably clarify that we're talking about Hilder Guanadotter, who did uh, Joker, uh, and Pinar Toprak, right. who was the Captain Marvel composer. Right. And yes, they've gone on to pretty high-profile projects. Yeah, pretty high-profile projects. So so I think we're seeing really, really tremendous results. We're readjusting, and um, people are getting opportunities, and I think we're seeing a very, very rich musical landscape, and it's I think it's very welcome. You've now stepped down as governor. I termed out. And there are new leaders in place at the Alliance. Yes. For women film composers. Are you still involved? In, in any way, shape, or form, in pressing for more progress for the underrepresented? Yes. I mean, I'm I'm now the head of the queer group at the Motion Picture Academy, along with Yancey Ford. So there are new affinity groups at the Academy, so those will start to really um, do some stuff. But I'm really happy. Uh, Leslie Barber is now at the Academy. Um, as Sherry a governor. Chung, yeah, at, 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 as a governor. And we have uh, uh, Sherry Chung at the um, Television Academy. As a governor. As a governor. And we've got great leadership at the Alliance. And I'm also happy to see other people doing it. Because for a long time, it was like three of us or, you know, five of us, a handful of us. And now that has grown and expanded uh, as it should. And that's healthy. Yeah. So I'm glad to step aside and let other people do it and see where it takes us and where it goes. And for the Alliance, I mean, when we started it, it was just like uh, there was nobody. And it was about doing a concert and getting a directory out to show that we were that we existed. And now there are multiple programs. And I mean, it's it's a really vibrant organization. So I think it's important as a leader to also step aside and let other people lead because it's healthier for everybody. If it's only me, then people stop listening, you know? <laughs> but at least you spoke up at the right time. I did. I did. I'm, I'm very proud of it. And I'm really proud of my tenure at the Academy. And I accomplished a lot. And I accomplished a lot for the music branch, too. You know, we had 
We got honorary Oscars for, I mean, I was really participating in that for Lalo Schifrin and for Diane Warren. That's a big deal for us. Yeah. I also helped with Agnes Varda and with Gina Davis get those honorary Oscars. So, And beyond that, the Women's Initiative and other things, including the shortlist, which I know is controversial, but I still feel is really important for representation because you've got those 15 spots rather than five spots. And so you've got 15 scores that can be elevated. And I think it's been good for the careers of a lot of people. Yeah, I think so. Those those, those 15 sort of pre-nominees yeah. very often include women and people of color. That's right. And so it's not just that moonshot of getting the five, but you, you know, and this was why my sort, sort of design of it, you know, was to really push for it because I felt that if you're able to elevate those scores, and you get Terrence Blanchard, you get Lolita Ritmanis, you get other people from smaller films, some things that you might not know about, who become a part of the sort of the campaign and the race, and then they have a better chance. So what about your career? Do you have other things coming up that we should or could talk about? Perhaps not just in film, but in other uh, elements of music making? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, I'm doing the second season of What If. I've got The Marvels, which is going to be a very big deal for me. It's the biggest thing I've ever done. It's a big film, and I'm really proud um, to have booked that at this point in my career. And and I hope there's a lot more. But I'm also finishing up my opera Balls about Billie Jean King and uh, Bobby Riggs. And uh, (laughs) that's going to be done. And I also have a commission from Opera Theater of St. Louis. And I'm going to do a piece on Dorothy Arsner. I know that name. You do, but you don't know who she is. Dorothy Arzner was... A director. A a director. And she was the only director who was a woman who was very queer, who was able to direct in the golden age. Wow. And so So there's this is an operatic work? It's an opera, so I want to tell her story. Oh great. Yeah. And this is this is part of what happens is that women and other underrepresented groups become invisible. Now why is Dorothy Arsner invisible? Why don't you know who she is? And you know everything. Because what happens is we're forgotten for some reason. And I don't quite know what it is. And it's my mission to make sure that doesn't happen. And so a lot of the work that I do outside of film work is really trying to go back into history and find people who have been overlooked and and amplify their work. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, this has been so much fun. Thank you for being with us today, Laura Cartman. Oh, God, my great pleasure. Thanks for coming out to the studio and for doing this interview. I appreciate it. Check out Marvel Studios' Ms. Marvel and What If on Disney Plus and listen to the soundtracks wherever music is enjoyed. Thank you for listening to Four Scores. Please subscribe and make sure to share this episode with your music-loving friends. It would also be great if you can rate it because that really helps others find the series. <laughs>